Here's a sneaky trick for making fancy cocktails without relying on your phone. If you want to make martinis or Manhattans, just remember the ratio 2-1-2. In a Manhattan, it's two ounces bourbon or rye, one ounce sweet vermouth, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. In a martini, the classic recipe is two ounces vodka or gin, one ounce dry vermouth, and two dashes of orange bitters, although you might like more or less vermouth. 2-1-2. That's all you have to remember. You might need a cocktail to make it through technology editor Alex George's primer on cryptocurrency on this episode. Not because Alex doesn't explain it well. We think he's kind of amazing at turning technology into English, actually. It's just that cryptocurrencies, by which I mean, of course, Bitcoin, can be a little stressful. What's not stressful? Watching the Olympics, which is why we took the time to research two brand new events in this year's Winter Games for this episode. Also on this episode, Roy talks about the dark side of LED lights, and we test the brand new Apple HomePod. Siri, make our listeners a martini. And while you're at it, buy them some Bitcoins. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. You may or may not have heard about the Bitcoin insanity that's going on. I'm going to guess you may have heard about it because I feel like everybody is talking about what's going on with Bitcoin lately. So Alex George has been deep in research trying to figure out how cryptocurrencies work, what they are. I think you've even invested in some. Is that true? It's the exact wrong time. I just <laughs> missed the wave entirely. Yeah, you're supposed to uh, sell high, I think, yeah. <laughs> not buy high. Uh, it's been so discouraging because I talked to all these guys in Silicon Valley who are like, yeah, you know, I bought some in 2011, forgot about it, bought a Lamborghini last year. Oh, <laughs> like no. that, that was one specific guy who's an investor. I think it was maybe 47 Bitcoin, which each of them was, it was like less than $5 back in 2011 when he bought it. And he bought a $200,000 car with it last year. Can we start with a really basic, stupid question? Yeah. What is a Bitcoin? <laughs> Is that a basic question? I think I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It is kind of like gluten. Like, hey, do you know what gluten actually is? <laughs> no. no, but I'm against it. Like, no, I don't know. So Bitcoin is the most famous example of what are called cryptocurrencies. But what that means is there's no physical Bitcoin. There's no. Did you guys see that news story about a guy who was selling Chuck E. Cheese tokens as reporting <laughs> oh, oh, them to be Bitcoin? Anyway, so there, it's not a physical currency. There's no cash for it. There's not even like gold backing it up in Forsenox or anything like that. All it is is just a piece of data that exists amongst shared computers, more or less. But the idea, the thing that makes it starkly different is that a Bitcoin is not controlled by a single entity. It's not controlled by a national government. It's not controlled by a bank of any sort. It's just this piece of software that's set up to basically self-regulate and to make sure that you know people don't generate counterfeit, people don't fudge transactions or anything like that. That it works basically like normal money and down to the idea of any commodity where the value of it can change, it can fluctuate, and it basically is worth whatever we collectively decide. Okay, so it's all just kind of like financial imagination fun time. A pessimistic view of economics, yeah. That's more or less what it is. But the thing that I think is still really interesting about it is so there's this mysterious figure who came up with the first Bitcoin and it was first proposed as this kind of thought experiment online and I couldn't figure out if the timing really lined up. It's all kind of unconfirmed, but it was a little bit of a reaction to the 2008 financial crisis and this money being regulated out of our own hands, that kind of thing. But the way Bitcoin works and a bunch of the other ones is that it's set up in a way that Whenever there's a transaction, the way all the parts that are required to be checked get checked, like I have however much Bitcoin I say I have, both of us are agreeing to a transaction or a trade or something like that. All that works by forcing these volunteer computers, these guys are miners, to use their computing power to do this really hard math problems that end up being the verification process to have a transaction go through. So it's this really creative way of self-regulating to make sure it all works without having to have a corporate overlord. blockchain? 
Correct. Oh, yeah. I did Jackie. it. You guys, I did Way it. To go. Yeah, I read his I read oh. his article. That's, what, that's <laughs> how that I know. Is that the thing I read about? Is that five the thing ago? that you just said it was? <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, it functions like normal money and you can buy stuff with it. But the main idea behind it is you invest in it like a commodity and you know, hopefully it appreciates. And Bitcoin is just the most famous example. There are over a thousand other cryptocurrencies. Whoa. There's one called IOTA, there's another one called Dogecoins, D O G E oh, coins. Oh, yeah, like that. The, what are those? The Shiba Inu, his little silly face. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. the Doge, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's one called Ripple. Uh, there's all these different ones like that. And they're all, you know, they work like normal money, but they just fluctuate like crazy. How do you buy these things? That was my main question is that somebody starting from zero, how do you get into it? The way that most people do it is the most popular app for this is called Coinbase. And uh, now Square, the Jack Dorsey cash app that works on Square. That like every single small retailer now has on an iPad. They make an app called the Cash App. And it works kind of like Venmo where you can link it to your bank account and trade money between. You can buy Bitcoin with that now. So the way that most people do it is have a service like Coinbase or like Square. You it's as easy as connecting your bank account to it and then saying purchase this many and then purchase it at that but price. But who are you buying it from? So say if you want to buy, and we'll speak in whole numbers, please. Sure. So we don't, since nobody can afford one Bitcoin anymore. <laughs> yeah. How much is a Bitcoin worth right now? Uh, it's about, it? I think it's dipped to $9,000 last I checked. Okay. As of yesterday. I think but it's maybe even lower. I don't know. Oh, it's probably, I just oh, when God. Henry and Research was looking it up every day, it was like 6,700 one morning. <laughs> yeah. like, as a press time, you know what? I'm not even, <laughs> <I'm laughs> even going to do that. Because the high was, what, almost 20000 It was just under $20,000. was that yeah. when you bought it? No, I bought it just before that. I was going up with it. But yeah. it's worth mentioning, too, that the other thing that makes it different than regular money is that since it's not attached to a national bank, the market never closes. It's this crazy volatility because there's nothing really governing when it turns off. There's a limited number of Bitcoin that can go into the world. We haven't reached that yet, right? No, it won't be reached until I think it's like 50 years from now, maybe 100. And the value of it then comes down to how quickly people are buying it up. Yeah, that kind of, it's it's economics that clearly I don't quite understand, but it follows the same principles. There's so many other currencies. By my estimation, the people I've asked about it, it seems like cryptocurrencies are leveling off and behaving more like regular commodities. So I think that there will still be a desire for new currencies like this. This kind of vaguely hippie cyberpunk kind of approach to the economy. And I think that makes it a little bit more exciting as well. So one last question. People keep talking about blockchain's use of internet power and energy and how bad that is for everything. Is there a solution to that? The reason they take so much power is that they're called GPUs, graphical processing units. That, that's the, you know, the green circuit board that does this kind of math problem really well. It takes a lot of energy to keep them cool. So it's the same issue that data centers have. Blockchain is basically, it's like an Excel spreadsheet with a record of all the exchanges that are going on. If you're the first one to contribute to it, your kickback for that volunteer is more Bitcoin. So you basically get this kind of commission oh, so for volunteering. that's why you would do it. Okay. That's why these you know, places in China are, you know, these warehouses yeah. that are full of places that are doing this right now. No, cool. thanks. <laughs> no. Yeah. So how much uh, money do you have in Bitcoin now? I only put in, I think, maybe 75 total. If you want to feel like, you know, even $75 worth of Bitcoin, it's point zero 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 one five two whatever Bitcoin. <laughs> it's this tiny, tiny number. And that's all you're working with. So you heard it here first. Uh, Alex George, our tech editor, is a point zero 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 one <laughs> Bitcoinionaire. It's that time again. Your favorite segment, Olympact Specs. <laughs> that rhymes. <laughs> That's how you say it? Might be a stretch this weekend. No, yeah. it's important. So uh, it's timely. We were just saying you have an Olympact story. There is a person out there who needs to be listening to this podcast that I met last night on the phone. Oh. I'm an Apple technician who was helping me fix my wife's computer. But I asked him if he was watching the Olympics because I, you know, you like pretend you care and you ask how their day is going. And that's hey, like, that's they do that nice. to you too. But it's just you're making conversation. Okay. And so he's like, it'll be better in 49 minutes, 13 seconds, and whatever. I was like, oh, it's when you get off. He's like, yeah. It's like, okay. Are you at least watching the Olympics in the background? He's like, the Olympics are on. 
Whoa. Mm. And I was curious, do you mean you didn't realize they were on tonight? Or you didn't realize that the event of the Olympics, he didn't know the Olympics were happening. Oh. And I asked him about that. I told him that they happen every four years. He didn't know. He lived he in St. Know, Louis. And he, he didn't know no that idea. the Olympics happen every four years. I well, think it just shows every, how you Technically, years. it's every two years. Well, right, but, but the like, summer, because I tried to explain to him, don't get too hooked. You'll have to wait a while. But it's yeah, not like so every year. There's quite a backlog that they could investigate. <laughs> it's a backlog. <laughs> but if you're a good computer technician, sometimes you don't know that the Olympics exist. Wow. He said he knew of them as a concept. He knew of them as a concept. Well, you have to. tried to get him to prove that he was not in a call center in some foreign country. And uh, he knew that the Rams. <laughs> this is like a really team. interesting night for you. I was on hold for so long. I was going crazy. <laughs> so that guy needs to listen. For this person. Ian from Apple. For Ian from listen. Apple, these are your Olympics facts. These will greatly contextualize. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not <laughs> for anyone listening. Okay, so my first fact. So what are the kinds of medals that you can win at the Olympics? We'll do a little quiz. Gold, silver, and bronze. The last time that the gold medal was actually gold was 1912. Whoa. What is, what it, is now? it now? It's just gold-plated, not gold. Gold-plated, like not gold. Like an alloy or something. Is it, why is that? They don't have enough money. Are they I broke? so. Oh. Probably. Well, that would probably be pretty expensive to give somebody. I wonder what, how much how those much things weigh. How much does the Olympics make? They how much money. is gold per ounce? A couple hundred Bucks? Should we look that up? Should we know things like this? (laughs) I'll look that up. I'll have a gold fact at the end of Olympics. Okay. Speaking of money, how much of the revenue of the Olympics do you think is from ticket sales? Ooh. What percentage? Percentage. I'm going to guess fairly low. 10%? 5%. Wow. But, but Jackie, well done. Yes. Yeah. Very well, uh, well done. I, that makes sense to me, I think, because like how many people do you know have ever been to the Olympics? Like not that many right. people get to go. Fun fact, I was actually in Beijing for the 2008 Olympics, but did not get to go oh. because no one would come with me to buy the tickets on the black market. Uh, <laughs> they were like, no, no, we're respectable. And you're like, well, I want to see the Olympics. So. Like I'm 14 and I would like to go see the Olympics, but no, <laughs> I got to watch them on TV. So most of the money from the Olympics is made from sponsorship and then from licensing the TV. Right. And this is for the athletes themselves. Because don't they have to be amateurs? Isn't that a thing? They do have to be amateurs. Okay. There actually used to be an arts competition as part of the Olympics from 1912 to 1948. There were competitions in architecture, literature, music, painting, and sculpture. Whoa. And part of the reason those were taken away was because of the amateur thing. Like these people were selling their creations afterwards, so like nudging into the realm of professional. And so that that part of the Olympics was... That's too bad because I feel like creative nonfiction, maybe we could get into a podcast category in the Olympics. We could have all been Olympics famous. It's true. Now we'll have to do the slope style. Yeah, which we're all going to fail abysmally at, I'm just going to say. It was really unfair, the wind in the women's slope style last night. Slope style is that thing with the snowboards and they go down and do cool tricks and jumps and things. And the wind was so nutty, they only got to do two runs. And, then and they nobody could really do it because once they went up in the air, the wind just blew them. Yeah, that's there. what I heard. Oh, it was not rough. fun. It just, you felt bad for all those people who made it to the Olympics. And it's like, yeah, there's a 50 mile an hour wind. My last Olympact fact. <laughs> Olympact <laughs> fact. Olympact. <laughs> is the first athlete to be disqualified for drug use. This is timely because of the whole Russia thing. Mm-hmm. Was in 1968. It was a Swedish athlete who tested positive for excessive alcohol. Oh, <laughs> I feel like that would make you better. Swede. <laughs> yeah. In Mexico City. It feels like they should almost have given her like extra points. Right. Like, well, come on. You know, here you go. <laughs> that is very interesting. Also, I noticed last night that there are Russian athletes, but they're marked OAR, Olympic athletes from Russia. Yeah. I was very confused. I was like, OAR? I think I saw that band once. They were bad. But no, yeah. <laughs> That'd be Olympic. quite a punishment if instead of instead representing of Russia, you had to represent OAR. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. One gold fact? Oh, yeah. What's our gold fact? Current price per ounce of gold, $1,300. That's why you don't get a gold. That's yeah. why you don't gold, get a gold, gold medal. Oh, well, makes sense. And that's been Olympics Facts. Olympics Facts.
Obviously, by now you have probably realized that the Olympics are on. If you are anyone who isn't Peter Martin's uh, Apple technician. Apple technician. <laughs> and it's really exciting. I love the Olympics. And I feel like the Winter Olympics have gotten more exciting over the past few years. So we were checking out the new events this year, and there are some really cool ones. There's mixed doubles curling, which has already been out by the time already you guys are going to hear this. So we're not going to talk so much about mixed doubles curling. So we decided we were going to explain the other two events to each other. So what's yours? Mine is the mass start speed skating, okay, which happens at the very end of the Olympics, the night before they're over. So okay. when you're about to be crushed that the Olympics are done, the best thing's going to happen. I don't know. I think mine's pretty cool. <laughs> Mine is uh, mine's big air snowboarding, which is really exciting. Too. It's so exciting. I put it on my calendar okay. <laughs> um, because I'm really excited about it. So tonight is the ladies' big air finals, February twenty third. Yep, and then tomorrow is the men's big air finals. So there's a lot of exciting big air coming your way. If men's big air finals are on the twenty fourth, that's when the the mass start speeds. Oh, you're gonna have to fight. I don't know. Maybe they'll do those like like screen in the screen thing. (laughs) It's true. Or they don't play them live for us anyway for the primetime time. Yeah, ones, so, so they'll show both. They'll show both. So talk to me about Mass Start Speed Skating. What I'm going to sell you, although I'm already kind of interested in yours. So <laughs> I don't know. This has happened before in the Olympics, which I thought was kind of crazy. They did it once in the 30s. Oh, that's weird. They obviously compete. They do world championships for this thing. There's a good American man, which always makes it more interesting if there's an American to root for right mm-hmm, away. Mm-hmm. His name is Joey Mantia. So okay. watch out for him. It's a good name. Anyway, here's how it works. They let you have up to 24 skaters on the ice at the same time, which is kind of crazy. And how fun. do they normally do speed skating? That's the thing. This is to try to make speed skating more exciting because usually it's basically time trials. It's two guys uh... head to head, and then they keep adding up the times. And at the end, you're like, you beat... The guy who went right, 20 minutes before it. you. Yeah. So this is a way to spice it up a little bit. They tried doing pursuit, which is when teams of three go around half a lap apart from each other. Okay. Kind of chasing, trying to go fast. That didn't work. This is better. Okay. So up to 24 people can start at the same time. It's 16 laps. The weirdest part, well, a weird part. <laughs> One of the weird parts. You can't pass the guy who starts in first, the first lap. And I think part of that is to try to keep people from killing each other and falling on each other when 24 people start uh-huh. at the same time. It just gets you all skating and kind of position. So that's for – you can't pass him – In the first lap. In the first lap. So this just is very slow, kind of boring. They're it's all like just looking cars, around. It's kind of like pace cars, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's like okay. if, there's a, if there's a yellow flag in a NASCAR race. And then 16 total laps. Every four laps, there is a sprint lap. But also, you may not want to do the sprint. This is where it's kind of silly that they do it. In regular competitions, the sprint lap, if you win that lap, you get five points. Second place on the sprint lap, you get three points. Third place, you get one point. Uh-huh. When you are doing a series of races and your points matter throughout the season, then that counts. But in the Olympics, it's only the first three people who cross because you get 60 points, 40 points, and 20 points for first, second, and third. Uh-huh. So if you win all three of the sprint laps, you have 15 points. You're not going to be so the third place win. person. Gotcha. So it doesn't matter. As long as you come in third. Yeah. Right. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody actually does the sprint laps. But it's fun because these guys will sprint and then they just pull off to the side and other people take over. So there's always different people leading the laps and everything. Okay. It actually gets fun. So skip the first seven minutes. Okay. <laughs> Usually the men's races take seven and a half. The women's races take about eight. The last lap is the fun one when everyone's just freaking out trying to win. Right. It's like the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. Okay. So it looks very fun. I can't wait to watch. It's on the last night before the closing ceremonies. A lot of people compare it to roller derby just because there's not really any rules except you can't obstruct somebody. Okay. So, but people will elbow each other. People will fall. Things Ooh, will happen. Ooh, scary. It sounds fun. I'm excited. Yeah, so that's mine. Let's hear about some Big All Air. All right. So let's teach you about Big Air because I think I'm excited. I'm more excited for mine still, I think. <laughs> so Big Air Snowboarding is a new event, obviously. This is basically one big jump. And by big, I mean big. It is a 49-meter ramp 
So that's 160 feet at a 40 degree slope. Gee. You just jump like hell off the thing. <laughs> and then you spin around like crazy. And they actually think that there's going to be a lot more new cool tricks this year because yeah. you just have so much time, just time in, the in the air. air. You have so much time in the air, like wow. so much hang time that you can do stuff that like hasn't been done before. So the way it works is you have three tries to go down. And they scoring-wise, you have six judges. They drop the highest and lowest score and then add the best two scores from your oh. best two jumps together. I like that. Not just best of three. Right. It's like know. they drop your crappy jumps. So you I can like have consistency. So you only get to do one trick. Bigger international competitions began in the 1990s. They were, I believe, part of the X Games. And then they decided to bring them into the Olympics because they're very exciting and they're very crazy and they're very dangerous. If you land wrong, you can break all sorts of things. There have been several people that have broken ankles and have not been able to make it into the Olympics this year. And here's how they judge it. They judge it on something called the deal criteria, I guess. That's difficulty, which includes doing extra rotations, taking off switch, which means, so I don't know if you snowboard, but if you snowboard, you have one foot forward. If your left foot is forward, you're regular. If your right foot is forward, you're goofy. So if you take off backwards, it's worth more. If you take off, I think it's worth more. If you take off switch, yeah, if you take off switch the opposite of your normal, then I think that is worth more. And then doing more challenging grabs. So if you grab things in weird ways, I guess. Then there's execution, which means staying in control the whole time and holding grabs for as long as possible. There's amplitude, but it's not just going big. It's going kind of perfectly big. So you want to land in the sweet spot, I guess. And then the landing, which is landing in full control with your trick completed. I was watching some slope style last night, and they kept talking about when Red Gerard won doing his backside triple cork 1440. <laughs> and I was like, what in the hell does that mean? And here's what that means. So there's some snowboarding terms you should know. Whenever they say 180, 360, whatever, that obviously means the amount of times you spin around in a circle. It'd be pretty disappointing if someone didn't know that. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I think because they've got so much air for this, getting really crazy big numbers. So a 1440 true. is four spins. That means you spin around four times. Seems like that would be the least you should do when you have 160 foot. Well, he did this on slope style, so we'll see what we see. Oh, there might be some even, even bigger. There might be even bigger numbers that we're seeing. Gotcha. And then a cork. Cork basically means like a corkscrew. So if you flip upside down and right side up as you are spinning around. That's cool. The way it looks is like a precessing football. So if you throw a football spiral poorly and it does that weird like wonky thing, that's basically what you're doing as you are spinning in the air. You're a a poorly thrown football. Your whole body. So a triple cork 1440 means that you spin around in a circle four times and you spin upside down and right side up three times. That's the triple cork. That sounds cool. So the people to watch in big air this year, I've heard Canada's Max Perrault. And Austria's Anna Gasser. That's for the women's. I might be more excited for yours than mine. I'm super excited. So check out tonight the women's big air finals and then tomorrow men's big air finals and also mass start speed skating. Happy Olympics. For today's Ask Roy, we have Roy, obviously, (laughs) and we also have Peter Martin, who has a question. It was your dad's question? This is a very special Kurt Martin Ask Roy. Kurt? Uh, That's your dad's name? Yes. Okay. Roy was kind enough to give him his contact information, and so now when my dad finds things, he sends them in to Roy, and he's solved a lot of family mysteries. 
Do you feel like relieved by that? Like they don't have to call you anymore and hassle you. They just go call Roy directly. They're relieved. Yeah, it's like let's ask Peter who can then go talk to Roy. Well, let's just talk to uh, Roy. <laughs> they cut me out of it. That's all right. You have a nice family. Peter. <laughs> I'm glad to help. Although this one turned into a headache for Roy. It was a big, big question. That yeah. didn't seem like it should be. Well, your, your dad had a light on a timer mm-hmm. that didn't work once he put in LED bulbs. Now, LED bulbs, as we all know, are the darlings of the energy-saving crowd, which is most of us. But it turns out, bad pun alert coming here. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> There's a dark side to LED bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we explain his issue? Yeah. yeah Although ahead. you actually might know better than I do. I just know they've had this light post on the front by right. the driveway forever that just had traditional bulbs in it. You know, your dad is an engineer, was interested in doing the thing that engineers like to do, be efficient which means saving energy, which means installing an LED bulb. So it's a perfectly rational, especially for lights in your house that are on a lot. Right. So I'll switch. Yeah. LED bulbs have a lot to recommend them. They're extraordinarily long-lasting in most cases. They're very energy efficient. And they're much, much simpler than the dreaded CFL compact fluorescent lamp. Are those ones that take like a long time to turn on, like you turn them on, they're still dim. Yes, yeah. Yeah, those are That's, annoying. Uh, CFLs were bad from the day they were introduced to the market. They're like the catalytic converter of light bulbs. They sort of <laughs> That's work. That's quite a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the LED bulb in the light post was on a timer, and once they switched from the traditional bulb to this, it just didn't turn off. Correct. It turns out that LED bulbs have characteristics, let's call them. They are incompatible, as it turns out, with certain types of dimmer switches. They need a minimum power to operate. And so in some cases, they won't work at all or they will work poorly. The thing you have to remember about an incandescent light bulb is that what it is really is a heater encased in glass that functions as a light bulb. All it is is a very high resistance heater that glows, and that's the incandescence Mm -hmm. of it. So when that's working with a timer, what it's doing is just shutting off the heating element. Well, yes. Okay. With an incandescent bulb. An incandescent bulb is simply a resistive thing. The electrical aspect of it is simple. It's on, off. Well, that's not really the case with LEDs, certainly not the case with CFLs, but LEDs are this gate thing that are more complex. If the filament breaks open, the current can't flow through it, and so it stops working. You change it out, it costs you 79 cents. On a timer switch, though, it is basically just setting a timer for when it's going to send power. It should. Now, let's simplify this. When you buy an LED, you look at the package, and the package will actually tell you if it is not suited for photosensors, timers, dimmers. There are LEDs that are basically the only thing they're suited for is an indoor light fixture with a simple single pole on-off switch. That's it. It'll tell you on the back of the package, not recommended for. And there'll be six things on there that you're not supposed to use it for. So the first step is to get a compatible LED bulb. In the case of your dad's light, it should have worked. But I'm thinking that there may have been some other feature having to do with the timer. Mm -hmm. Because you can time an LED. I mean, that's... Right. Why would it matter if it... Yeah, yeah. But what happens is that in some cases, some lighting devices actually require specific types of wiring to work properly. That gets to be a complicated discussion that has to do with a change in the electrical code, whether you have this thing called a neutral wire in the switch box. Most older houses pre-2011 don't have that neutral wire in the switch box. So 
it can be complex depending on the fixture and the switch. It's not always the LED's fault. So should he just get a new switch? That depends. The first thing I would say, run a basic test, put a, a standard incandescent bulb in there and just be sure that there's not something goofy going on. All right, the switch actually works. Be sure also, by the way, that the fixture does not have some sort of built-in photo sensor that's meant to override the timer switch or something. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just saying. If that's the case, you can buy the correct LED bulb. You want to run some basic electrical tests first to be sure that there's nothing else going on. And then try an LED bulb that is specifically rated for outdoor use. So, Roy, what is the actual mechanism? What's the reason that the light is staying on with an LED that it wouldn't stay on with the old bulb that was in Yeah, there. the incandescent. Some of these new complex switches, even when it's off, will pass electricity through the fixture, through the bulb, and then back to the switch. It's completing its own circuit. The switch itself is a power-using device, not merely an on-off gate. And so what's happening is passing this little bit of power that's just enough to make the LED light. It's not enough to make an incandescent bulb light, right. but an LED will because an LED requires such a tiny amount of electricity to operate that it's actually enough to light the bulb. It's also not costing anymore if that's what was running the switch the entire time. Funny you, you mentioned that. Actually, people have talked about that. It ends up as another small parasitic on the home's electrical system. So that's the skinny um, LEDs. You know, more complicated, unfortunately, than we would have hoped. My dad is grateful. I have to admit, for this week's Curious Idiot, it wasn't actually Kevin who came up with the Curious Idiot question. We foisted this Curious Idiot upon you. Yeah. So I apologize. But why don't you go ahead and I mean, I'll, I'll pretend it never <laughs> occurred to me before to have this question. No, basically, I just have photos everywhere. That's pretty much yeah. what it comes down to. So, like, I had an old external hard drive, which I forgot existed, and then I found it, and I realized that there were photos I've been looking for, and they must live there. Like, I was looking for these photos recently. couldn't find them anywhere. Because now I have a new external hard drive. I also have all the photos on my phone mm-hmm. and the photos on the built-in hard drive of my laptop. Is there a way to organize these all in one place where it's easy to find all the photos I have. I was dealing with the exact same thing when I tried to find a solution. My finding was it's not as much of a tedious process as you would think it would be, but it does take a little bit of work. The problem is that like our phones are basically where photos live, in quotes, and you have to kind of work with what Google or what Apple gives you for mm-hmm. storing your stuff ultimately. I tried a bunch of different ways, but it basically comes down to you pick a cloud storage service that you want to have them all go onto, and then once you have that, you figure out a way to pull them all together in some way and then put them there. And then once they're all in one place, then you can kind of do the work of like figuring out copies, getting rid of those, that kind of thing. That's the more or less the gist of what you have to do. Every part of that sounds not yeah, fun at none all. Yeah, that it's, sounds fun. Yeah, yep. it's worth having like a cocktail next to you while you're doing it. But I was actually happily surprised by it. it was fun to find old photos and like things that you just thought you'd gotten rid of or had lost forever. But um, you will have to kind of go through and deal with getting everything together in one place. So how do you choose which cloud service to use? So it kind of comes down to how active you are with your pictures. The reason I thought to do this project was Adobe. They have this thing called Lightroom. And that's what mm-hmm. a lot of pro photo editors use as just a way to organize photos and keep track of them, that kind of thing. Thing. They made a really consumer-friendly version of that that has all these different adjusters and photo editing, that kind of thing. But you can pay 10 bucks a month for that and you get a terabyte, which is more than enough for, I think, most people. But I just did it with Apple because, again, you're kind of stuck with your phone is your main device for how you deal with photos or your laptop or whatever. They want to have you live within their system. It's just like, all right, screw it. I'll just live with iCloud and do it that way. 
I think I pay three bucks a month to have the 200 gigs of iCloud storage. So that means, you know, they have enough room for all the photos. And then from there, the process of what you're talking about is like accounting for all the different disparate places that you have pictures. That's where it becomes a little bit of a pain in the ass. I had the same thing. I have a bunch of things like that are in Facebook that I don't actually like yeah. own. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like someone else took pictures like of us, but I'm tagged in them. I don't know what to do with those. Like, how do I get those? Can I? You can. None of these companies advertise it a lot, but you can do this thing like Google, for example. So if you had Google Photos and you have a bunch of stuff saved there, this thing called Google Takeout, which lets you download a zip file with all your pictures on it and have it like somewhere on your laptop where you can manage it. Facebook, I don't know if the current version of it is only if like you're deleting your account where it lets you export everything off of there, uh, but I know there's a way you can pull photos off of there as well. Okay. The goal is to kind of take all those different versions and the ideal is to have a computer, you need a desktop, you can't do this on like an iPad or anything like that. Find a folder either on an external hard drive or ideally on the computer itself where you can just throw everything together and just have it this big messy pile of everything that it will be important to you for a photo. You said earlier that at some point you have to go through and like get rid of duplicates. Do they do that automatically? Like does software do that or do you actually have to go through and just look at No, everything? this is the part that kind of bummed me out. I mean, I can understand why. I asked Adobe, asked Google, all of them, and if they have a duplicate elimination, whatever. They said, yeah, we got a request for it, but no, we don't have any system like that. I can understand because you wouldn't want to have a system that was in any way faulty, getting right. rid of foes you don't want. My solution was this app for Mac OS that it's 10 bucks called Photo Sweeper. And what it'll do is you give it a huge batch of all your photos and it'll look at the metadata behind it, which means like location, time, all that stuff. So it'll figure out this is a bunch of photos that were taken on the burst setting on a camera. You know what I mean? So it has a whole bunch of repeats. Uh-huh. Maybe oh, that's all, interesting. That's pretty like smart. Five of the seven are people's eyes are closed or look wonky or blurry. You can get rid of those really quickly too. And also it'll just find duplicates either by the file name or whatever. And when you're going through, what you can do is if there's two of the exact same photo, but one of them is bigger than the other one, you keep the bigger one because it's more data rich and probably has better image quality. Okay. The conclusion, and that's the advice I'd give to a lot of people is that the only thing I've ever seen people be really upset about losing is photos. Like they lose their phone and they have it backed up or something like that. That's the only thing that people would be upset about. So generally, if it's a really unruly number of photos, I mean, you can chip away at them using something like Photo Sweeper. And for duplicate photo cleaner, if you have a Windows computer, it works well too. Uh, they both do the same thing. But in terms of if you're getting that iCloud storage is full or if you're getting that error message, I found that three bucks a month is worth it to just not have to deal with that and just, you know, know for certain that all your stuff is there and you're not going to like lose your precious photos or anything like that. I mean, my goal for this was to actually have a narrowed, useful, searchable set of photos, and you will have to put in some time doing that. Once you get it all together and you run that app, or you can kind of just go through yourself in Apple Photos or in Lightroom and just do it that way, it's kind of worth it. It's more concentrated, and you don't have to spend a lot of time looking through all different old versions of photos. And you can actually look at them when you want to, or upload them when you want to, send the ones that somebody asks you for, that kind of thing. Right. I have to say, I'm generally a Luddite about almost everything, I feel like, that comes up on this podcast, but Mm -hmm. I was home for Thanksgiving, my mom has five sisters, and they were all together, which they never are, so they pulled out a box of old photos. Right. It's fun to, like, pick up the photos and hold them, but it's no fun organizing them with just a bunch of old shoeboxes. Like, being able to just click through on a computer and page through a photo set, that's better. I think that's better. Yeah. I have a really sad photo story. I took a bunch of photos out of those old photo books that people had. Mm -hmm. I took them all out, and I think there was, like, a big rainstorm, and they all got stuck together. Oh, I remember that. And so I, I lost a few photos in that experience and now i have so many that are stuck together i do not know how to unstick them and i There's just have to be them. a way right i think there does have to be a way and that's actually something maybe we should 
try to figure out on this podcast. Yeah. It's got to have happened to somebody else. Well, thank you, Alex George. Do you feel better about your curiosity? I do. That actually, that seems sort of reasonable of a thing to do. There's no easy way around it, but having gone through it, it's a thing you can chip away at, and when it's finally done, it's pretty satisfying. Okay. Cool. For this week's testing table, we have a live version of Alex George's Instagram, an unboxing of the Apple HomePod. That's right. Where'd you get that thing? Apple just did demos and they gave out loaners for editorial testing and all that. It's wow. such a beautiful box. I don't. I wouldn't even want to open it. Yeah. I know. Well, I, there's there's cool stuff inside it. I think that's, that's true. Wanna, yeah. Yeah. Apple really figured that out. As I open, I can tell you a little bit about it. But the whole idea is that people say that's Apple's answer to Alexa and to Sonos and all those different ones. But I don't know if that's exactly right because the thing that they're selling it on, which at least from the brief demo I had, is that it's a really awesome sounding speaker. It's bigger than I thought it would be. Uh, me based too. On the yeah. Commercials. It's, yeah. It's kind of tall. Like how tall would you say? It's like the size of a big yeah, papaya. Let me take it out. <laughs> is that <laughs> a good reference? point i don't have a papaya in my mind okay it's like a honeydew yeah. of the fruits it's tro- yeah that's a pretty good pineapple, one, yeah. Yeah, a pineapple. pineapple i don't know how you didn't go with pineapple i don't know i was thinking papaya. without the tuft of leaves on top but like a big pineapple oh yeah that's like I mean, yeah it's like bigger than a football it's, like a fat, it's pretty fat big can you tell me what this is i don't understand it's a speaker Okay. The focus is for music, but you can talk to it like you would your phone when you say, hi, Siri. Oh, I see. So you can call this thing Siri. Correct. So if you're on the same Wi-Fi network as the speaker when it's set up, you can ask it to read your messages back to uh, tell you how long it'll take to get somewhere, all that kind of thing. So you can kind of use it like an Amazon Alexa. So is this thing supposed to have better sound than the Alexa? Yeah, that's the idea. I'm very curious about this round speaker. It seems like it would be hard to make a round speaker that's good. Doesn't it need to be directed? That's why yeah, I've always thought, too. Because the thing I've always heard is that you have to have at least two to have, like, stereo sound. It needs to be calibrated. But the guiding idea behind this one is a whole bunch of internal microphones that are constantly listening to the music as it's playing and figuring out the map of the room. So Sonos, a couple of years ago, we wrote about in the magazine, has this feature where you would set it up to calibrate for the room. And when it do these laser sounds, and you'd hold your phone all around the room. And it would calibrate to see how the sound was bouncing around, what the acoustics were like. This thing is doing that all the time, constantly. The idea is that you said anywhere and it'll sound really, really oh, good. Oh, I see. That's cool. Microphones are constantly listening to the music as it plays in your apartment, and that's all. Microphones don't even phase me anymore. <laughs> this is another thing. So when you open up your phone, it just oh, automatically it says, hey, this is another principle behind Apple is buy all Apple stuff and everything works really, really well together. Generally, it kind of does. <laughs> so it's hard to argue with it. So let's see. We call us the garage like we're Mark Marin or something like that. All right. Okay. Then you can say enable personal requests and that's where you can be like read my messages that kind of thing. Okay. This is something that people have kind of found to be a little off-putting about it. So the speaker is more or less an extension of your phone. So as long as your phone is on the same Wi-Fi network as the speaker, anybody can go to the speaker and ask ah. it to read your messages back. That's worse than the microphone. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that I'd like spooky. that. Yeah. So you would not enable that. I mean, or do you have to because it's playing music off of your phone? The whole idea behind these is that you can just keep on going about chopping vegetables or whatever you're doing and have it, say, make a reminder for you. Mm -hmm. If you want to have it be able to do any of that, then you have to enable it. Okay. Don't tell all of our podcast listeners what your message is. I know. Oh, it's making noises. Setting up. It seems pretty easy so far, I have to say. Yeah. That's coming from the curious idiots. Yeah. (laughs) Setting up now. Uh, The other idea, too, is that you can set up, tell it to turn your speakers a certain color or whatever. Siri. Welcome to HomePod. To get my attention, say, hey, Siri. All right, so, hey, Siri. Uh-huh. Play Window Licker by Aphex Twin. Playing Window Licker by Aphex Twin. 
All right, so now it's playing, and so the idea is that as it's playing, it knows the basic data of the song as it's coming in through Apple Music, and uh -huh. then it's kind of calibrating and saying, like, okay, it sounds weird when it bounces off of that direction or whatever, and that's all those microphones that are inside that are doing it. So do you have to have hey, Apple... Siri, stop. Do you have to have Apple Music in order to do this, or yes. will it play that you do? Oh, can't even do it on Spotify. you can't use Spotify. No. That... Can you just stream to the speaker from your phone? That's a good question. Let's find out. Now, as far as I can tell... It does let you treat it like a Bluetooth speaker. Ah. But you just you can't use your Spotify account to just voice command it. There it goes. You have to go back to your phone and it just becomes like a $350 Bluetooth speaker. Okay. Which I guess is not such a terrible thing, but so that's coming from Spotify. But it's Bluetooth, so it has this I hit the pause button and it took like two seconds for it to work. Uh -huh. So it had some disadvantages like that. I have to try it. Like, I use this app, Overcast, which I've been trying to make the case for. Yes, we've heard about that. I push it on a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if it works on here. So, for example, when you say, hey, play my podcast, it wants to use Apple's default podcast app. When you ask for directions, it wants to use Apple Maps. It doesn't want to use Google oh, Maps. Oh, so you'll never get anywhere. Correct. Yeah, you'll go. <laughs> you <laughs> can drive if you want to drive around in circles for a while. Drive to a lake. Yeah. yeah. Sonos has kind of led this space for a long time. They have the play speakers, and they were the first ones that had this kind of modular, you can tell it to play the Beatles in one room play stones in another room and then you can add more onto it and go have a kind of a whole house system but without having to like drill into walls or add wires or anything like that so the question of whether it's actually like a leap beyond for something like that i'm not really sure about it for a single speaker like this it sounds pretty awesome it does sound so it definitely good. sounds better than like if you just buy an out of the box 120 echo it yeah. sounds a hell of a lot better than that right you can buy two sonos ones which have yeah. alexa and forthcoming google built in them and you can get two of them for I think it's let, it's just slightly below the cost of this. So you set the volume through voice command, but it has a plus and minus on top. Is the top just a touchscreen? Yeah, so it's a plus minus, and the rest of it works like the little button on the headphones that come with your iPhone. So you touch it once to pause oh, okay. it, double tap to skip tracks, that kind of thing. And how much does this cost? I think you said, but... 350 bucks. Okay, $350. And uh, as we end all of these segments, I would like to ask, would you, as our technology editor, buy this? Not yet. Okay. Siri is, functionality-wise, it's not quite as intuitive or as easy as the amazon ones for sound i have to listen to it a little bit more but it sounds really good if that's like a priority but i think that once it kind of gets more capabilities and a little bit more flexibility it could be really useful but right now things like that being able to read your text that kind of thing that's enough of a drawback to say only Hold if you on. really yeah unless you're a huge apple head you know the airpods are a much better investment if you're into audio that kind of thing okay great and if you want something like this maybe try the sonos speakers yeah the sonos uh ones are those are the top of my list right now for that if you you know you want good quality you know audio that you play with your voice as opposed to just using a bluetooth speaker yeah i think those are the best cool that's our show y'all the Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics Magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.